This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, I'm standing in the center of St. Petersburg, and the sidewalks are just packed with people shuffling past vendors and buskers. And standing here, it's easy to see why Russia's second largest city is its cultural capital and its most popular tourist destination. It's an impressive intersection of old and new. On my left, there's a centuries-old cathedral, and its church spire is shaped sort of like an onion, like you'd see in Russian postcards and souvenirs. And on my right, there are trendy hotels and alleyways lined with hip cafes, tons of cool little bars, and tourists drinking cocktails served in those Russian matryoshka dolls. As impressive as all of this is, this is not why we're here. Our destination is one that you won't find on TripAdvisor or in any tourist guidebooks. We're heading about a 20-minute drive away from the city center to a much quieter, leafier neighborhood. This is Sawushkina Street, and it's uh, kind of bland, to be honest. There's some nondescript apartment buildings and offices, and there's one building here that's four stories tall that has a large for rent sign hanging in the window. And if not for the Russian translator who's accompanying me here, I would never guess that this was the home of the Internet Research Agency, the official name for the now notorious Russian troll factory. The term Kremlin troll is a known thing in Russia, but American and Canadians weren't prepared for it. I'm Jeff Semple, the Europe Bureau Chief for Global News, and this is Russia Rising. As a Canadian correspondent based in Europe, I do a lot of reporting on Russia. It's a world superpower, of course, hugely important country, and it's one that's not afraid to throw its weight around on the world stage. And Russia is constantly being accused of behaving badly, of meddling, hacking, doping, invading neighboring countries, even assassinating former spies. But despite all of that coverage and constant attention, I think Russia is also deeply misunderstood by many people in the Western world, including Canada. So on this podcast, we'll try to piece together the puzzle, separate fact from fiction, and unravel the mystery that is Russia, with help from those who know her best. And on this episode, we're going hunting for trolls. Not the kind that live under bridges and carry large clubs. I'm talking about Russian internet trolls. The Kremlin is using the internet to manipulate political opinion. In Russia, according to one former Russian internet troll, and in the United States too. Like the kind accused of interfering in the 2016 U.S. presidential campaign. Facebook told Congress Russian trolls posted 80,000 items from January 2015 to August 2017, reaching more than 20 million in the United States. In fact, this evening, a new report about Russia's efforts to stir up racial conflict right now inside the United States. But how do those trolls actually work? And come on, is it really possible for a group of people on the internet to affect an election result in a different country? 
And besides the United States, which we've heard a lot about, I also wanted to know if other countries, specifically Canada, are targeted too. So I came to St. Petersburg to ask a guy who knows firsthand what these trolls are up to. You see, Vitaly Besbalov used to be one of them. Vitaly and I meet at a park in St. Petersburg, and we find a bench where we can sit down and chat. He did not want to meet near his house because he said he was worried that we might inadvertently identify the location where he lives and that he could then be targeted for speaking to us about his experience at the troll factory. And it's hard to blame the guy for being worried. We tried reaching out to a few other former professional trolls who used to work at the troll factory and have since quit and spoken publicly about their experiences, but most of them don't want to talk anymore. They say they've been threatened with criminal charges, accused of being an American spy, for example. Another one we spoke to had a family member fired from their job after he did an interview. And Vitaly himself has actually done some media interviews before and paid the price. He says he's been threatened with espionage charges and had his reputation smeared by stories produced by the Kremlin-controlled TV channels in Russia. They accused him of being a drug addict, for example. But despite all of that, he bravely agreed to meet with us and speak to us about his experience. I gave it a lot of thought, but I believe it's important for me to tell my story. And if something happens to me, I hope that TV channels like yours will report on it too. Now, I've got to admit, Vitaly doesn't exactly look like a Russian troll. I mean, he's a skinny young guy wearing his hat backwards. He's got a studded bracelet on his wrist and more than a few tattoos running up his arm of words written in Russian Cyrillic. When I ask him about the tattoos, he rolls up his sleeve and shows me that he's actually got the face of a Russian opposition leader drawn on his shoulder. So, not exactly the pro-Kremlin propagandist you might expect to meet. But he says that's partially because he had no idea what he was signing up for when he was first hired by the Troll Factory back in 2014. Back then, he says, he was an aspiring young journalist looking for work when he came across an online ad for what he thought was a job at a news website. He says the starting pay was pretty good, better than average, so he applied and he got a call. When I went for the job interview, there was tight security at the building, and my manager asked me a lot of strange questions, like they wanted to know where my family members worked. I provided samples of articles I'd written about the persecution of Russia's LBGTQ community and about opposition leader Alexei Navalny, but they didn't seem too worried about my politics. They said that I wouldn't be writing those types of articles, but that I was clearly a good writer, and they offered me this job. But after a couple of days at the office, Vitaly realized this was not an ordinary newsroom. He'd actually been hired as a professional internet troll. My job was to write 20 news articles a day full of pro-Kremlin propaganda and then share the articles using fake online accounts I created with name and photos taken from real online profiles without their owners knowing, though. 
The website Vitaly wrote for was made to look like it was based in Ukraine, and his articles mostly focused on the war in that country. But instead of the annexation of Crimea by pro-Russian separatists and the Russian military, Vitaly was instructed to write about a militia of volunteers who were fighting for freedom against the evil, western-backed Ukrainian government. And he recalls his manager telling him the most important rule. She told me, don't mention Russia. Russia does not participate in this conflict at all, and you can't say otherwise. Russian President Vladimir Putin later admitted that Russian forces had, in fact, been deployed to Ukraine. But at the time, in 2014, the Kremlin was still insisting that any Russian troops were merely patriotic volunteers who were in Ukraine on their holidays. Vitaly says after writing the articles, he would then spam the links to the stories all over the internet, so in chat rooms, on social media, dating websites, wherever he could find. He admits back then it was pretty basic work, but that was just the beginning. We were the first ones, the pioneers of this work. And now I can see what they're doing in many other countries. Now, despite his moral objections, Vitaly continued working at the troll factory for about three months. He said his plan was to collect enough information so that he could publicly expose what was going on there, which he did, at first publishing an anonymous article online. But before he resigned his post in November 2014, he said the troll factory had started recruiting English-speaking employees. They worked in a separate area of the building, he says, under tighter security. And their job was to produce propaganda targeting Western countries, particularly the United States. I humbly and gratefully accept your nomination Most of the controversy over Russian trolls has focused on the last U.S. presidential campaign, but it didn't stop there. To find out more about what really happened, I caught the train from St. Petersburg to Moscow to meet with a Russian investigative journalist. My name is Andrei Zakharov. I'm a special reporter of RBC magazine. Andrei Zakharov uncovered how the troll factory evolved from writing and posting some fake news stories into a well-oiled propaganda machine. As we know, at about 2015, they focused on the U.S. By 2015, during the lead-up to the U.S. election, Zakharov says the trolls' online posts, mostly on Facebook and Twitter, were reaching up to 50 million people every week. Most of their posts focused on divisive social issues, and they were doing much more than fueling the debate online. One day in 2015, the trolls decided to conduct an experiment using free hot dogs as bait. New York City has a lot of traffic, of course, and a lot of traffic cameras. And you can actually watch the video feed from those cameras on the internet in real time. They found some open web camera in New York. The trolls advertised on Facebook in the U.S. that hot dogs were being given away for free on a particular street in Manhattan. At this time in New York, you can get free hot dog. And then they saw with a um, web camera whether people would really come or not. And then they saw that 
at this time they saw that people came and looked where are all these hot dogs. And the trolls realized that if they could trick people into showing up for street meat, what about political protests? No justice, no peace, no plan, no police. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. On May 21st, 2016, two competing political rallies were held in Houston, Texas, for and against the opening of a local Islamic library. Both rallies were organized on Facebook, and they happened right across the street from each other. The anti-Islam protesters waved Confederate flags, one wore a t-shirt that said white power, and they were encouraged by the organizers on Facebook to bring their guns to the rally. The police were called in. There was some local press coverage. Well, it turns out that both protests for and against the Islamic library were organized by Russian trolls 9,000 kilometers away. And those rallies in Houston were just one example. Trolls are very good in social media marketing. Zakharov says the troll factory organized and funded dozens of political rallies in the U.S. on sensitive issues like immigration, religion, and race. Law enforcement separated two groups at Stone Mountain, the White Power Rally and the counter-protests. Both got intense and violent. The trolls organized a white power rally and counter-protest last summer in Georgia that made national news in the U.S. and was also covered by Russian television. And the trolls are very proud of themselves, sure. Zakharov says the troll factory had a budget of more than a million dollars a month, paid for by Yevgeny Prigozhin, a Russian oligarch and close friend of President Putin. He's nicknamed Putin's chef because he started in the restaurant industry and has become one of Russia's wealthiest men, thanks in large part to business and military contracts he secured from the Kremlin. So Prigozhin is a sort of example of what, what are called curators uh, in the Kremlin. That's Dan Treisman, a professor of political science at the University of California and author of the book The New Autocracy, which investigates the inner workings of the Kremlin. Treisman says Putin relies heavily on people like Prigozhin, who are called curators, basically freelancers who work outside the official channels of the Russian government. Uh, these individuals who are tasked with responsibility for some important uh, sphere of activities, but who don't have any official state position. Uh, and uh, therefore, if they run into trouble, the Kremlin can deny that this has anything to do with the government. Uh, but at the same time, uh, Putin expects results from them. And in return, uh, they're paid well or allowed uh, various, uh, allowed to continue with various corrupt activities, which are very lucrative. Pergozin is one of 13 Russians named in an indictment from Robert Mueller and the U.S. Department of Justice in connection to the troll factory. 
But despite the commonly held belief that the troll's main goal was to help elect Donald Trump in 2016, Zakharov says most of the time they actually promoted both sides of an issue. They were creating ads and posts that were both pro-Muslim and anti-Muslim, both for and against gun ownership, and both Republican and Democrat. Their main aim never was to support Trump. I mean, uh, their main aim was to raise all tensions uh, in, in the American society. But what about Canadian society? Zakharov says the troll factory had a U.S. department and an international department that targets other countries. He says Canada's close proximity and relationship to the U.S. means Canadians are also targeted, albeit on a much smaller scale. There are some tensions between uh, uh, the U.S. and Canada, th that's why. There were thousands of tweets that talked about Canadian issues. That's Patrick Warren. I'm an associate professor of economics uh, at Clemson University. A few years ago, Warren's colleagues at his university in South Carolina developed a tool called the Social Media Listening Center. It's basically an archive of posts from social media. So when Twitter recently identified thousands of accounts and millions of tweets as coming from the Russian troll factory, Professor Warren had an idea. And we knew that with that list of accounts, we would be able to, uh, to uncover more uh, than anyone really had access to at that point uh, about what these guys were trying to do. And so we sprung into action. Warren and his team were able to effectively look back in time. They analyzed three million tweets that came from the trolls' accounts. We were able to categorize them into six broad categories of sorts of accounts, basically what sort of person uh, was this account pretending to be. There were accounts that pretended to be from legitimate local news sources, for example while others tried to promote various hashtags. But Warren says the largest groups were dubbed the left trolls and the right trolls. Left troll accounts are sort of pretending to be folks on the extreme left of the political distribution. People who are very upset with the system the way it is. Uh, many of them strong supporters of Black Lives Matter, uh, but, but not just that, uh, sort of uh, very left parts of the Democratic Party, uh, Bernie Sanders supporters, Jill Stein supporters, that sort of thing. Uh, and then the right troll accounts were sort of the opposite extreme. Very nationalistic, very pro-Trump, very anti-immigrant. And so these are, the, these are the biggest set of accounts. Warren directed me to a spreadsheet containing the three million troll tweets. And it's searchable, so you can type words like Canada or Justin Trudeau to find and read the tweets that specifically targeted Canadians. I've spent hours combing through the list. And it's funny, some of the tweets seem totally ordinary and mundane commenting on Canadian sports results, for example. But the majority of the posts focused on really divisive, emotional issues, such as Canada-US relations and immigration. They would often cite stories uh, of uh, immigrants involved in crime. It seemed like they were just scraping as far as they could to find any examples of Im immigrants in involved in crime and emphasize those sorts of stories. More than 2,000 of the trolls' tweets specifically mention Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, including the hashtag Trudeau must go, and Trudeau is forced to rethink his open borders policy. 
Once again, asylum seekers are steadily pouring over the border from the U.S. into Quebec and Canada. During a spike in border crossings last year, one troll account wrote, Canada forced to take drastic action to stop illegals from flooding in. After the terrorist attacks in Brussels in 2016, another Russian troll account called Amelie Baldwin wrote, Syrian refugees are not welcome to Toronto. Hashtag Islam kills. Hashtag Brussels. And there were also plenty of posts on the extreme left, a lot of them very critical of police, for example. After the high-profile police shooting death of Toronto teenager Sammy Yatim, one troll account wrote, Hashtag TPS for Toronto Police Service, back at it again, murdering unarmed, racialized youth. Hashtag police brutality. Hashtag Toronto. Hashtag Sammy Yatim. They, they can borrow words that are already existing but are very fringy and make them see less fringy than they really are. One troll account promoted the hashtag Black Lives Matter, while another said, keep Canada white. And Warren says that after the 2016 U.S. election, the number of tweets actually rose. We saw significant changes in the way that these accounts acted over time. They got sneakier, they got harder to identify. I think you can get a very biased and extreme view of how divided we are. And I think that's a, a big thing I'm taking away from this, that that's what, that's what the Russian trolls are trying to accomplish. And I think if you can be aware of that, uh, you might be able to protect yourself to some extent. And here's why many of us may need to do a better job of protecting ourselves. And for me, this may be one of the most chilling details in this story. In a short period of time, these accounts run by Russian trolls picked up thousands of real followers and their posts were retweeted and mentioned tens of millions of times by other genuine users. Real people, including many Canadians, were liking, sharing, promoting this Russian troll activity without even knowing. So, armed with all of that information, I hopped aboard Moscow's subway and hitched a ride to the Kremlin. Vladimir Putin was unavailable, so instead, I met Yaroslav Nilov, an MP. Nilov, like a lot of Russians, including their president, doesn't totally deny that the troll factory was or is a real thing, but he insists they don't know anything about it besides what they've read in the press and that it has no connection whatsoever to the Kremlin. Nilov also questions whether even a small army of online trolls could actually influence an election result in a country like the United States or Canada. I think that the internet is a powerful place, but the reasons that Trump won the election have nothing to do with this. I think that when Russia is blamed, it is just the establishment trying to offer excuses as to why they have lost. And that raises an even bigger question. Do posts and advertisements on social media actually have the power to sway someone's political beliefs, to change their vote? The short answer, based on the limited research available on that subject, is not really. 
they can reinforce or amplify someone's existing beliefs. So if you already think that police are racist, for example, you're more likely to believe a fake news story about police brutality or be encouraged to join a protest by an ad on Facebook. But it's highly unlikely that online trolls could trick large numbers of people into voting for a different political candidate. But according to Vitali, that former troll we met back in St. Petersburg, the troll's influence should not be underestimated. If an election race is close, he says, they could have an impact. And the troll's main goal isn't necessarily to promote a particular candidate, but rather to sow division in Western countries, to weaken alliances like NATO that stand up to Russian aggression, and to make America and its allies appear deeply divided and dysfunctional, so that ordinary Russians will look over and see the Western version of democracy as a chaotic mess, a failed experiment, compared with Putin's Russia, his so-called managed democracy, which they see as strong and stable. The troll's success in sowing division in the United States is difficult to deny. And Vitaly warns Canadians should also be on guard ahead of their next federal election in 2019. If Canadians are afraid of foreign influence, they need to double-check everything they read online. If you see some data on Facebook, check it with different sources. Canadians need to be vigilant. For Curious Cast and Global News, this is Russia Rising, an investigative series from me, Jeff Semple, to unravel the mystery of today's Russia. If you liked what you heard, you can help spread the word by rating, reviewing, and subscribing for free now at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and every other app where you get your streaming audio. We can also be found at CuriousCast.ca. Next time, we'll delve deeper into why the Kremlin would want to stir up trouble for Western democracies like Canada by taking an in-depth look at the man who has ruled Russia for almost two decades. You know, you can point to many times and many episodes in both his political rise and then since he's been president and then around the world um, where he talks about democracy. I mean, he, he'll claim to have been democratically elected uh, and so forth. But he's created a political system where there's no chance of drama and also a political and legal system where there's very little chance now for people to rise up against the authority of the state. Vladimir Putin was a poor kid from a tough neighborhood who became a Russian spy, a billionaire and the country's longest serving leader since Stalin. But he's also been accused of committing a laundry list of atrocities. To understand how Putin operates, we'll hear from those who know him best, including a former fellow Russian spy. That's next time on Russia Rising. If you have a question or want to know more, follow me on Twitter at JeffSempleGN or email me at RussiaRising at CuriousCast.ca. And be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today. Russia Rising is written and hosted by me, Jeff Semple. Dilla Velazquez is our story producer, and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for Russia Rising.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.